0: Good morning everyone, glad you're here and as that benevolence offering makes its way around, um, let's um, pray and if you've got that plate, hold on to it a moment, let's pray and uh, we'll get to work in our text. Father, we are thankful that we have an opportunity today to study your word and to see what you want us to see for our vision for 2010. Pray Lord that um, you would be pleased with the intentions of our hearts, with the Um, dreams that, uh, Lord, you've put on our leadership, and uh, we pray that 2010 would be a year of fruitful ministry, uh, a a new kind of day for us at College Park Church. So, Lord, be our teacher today from your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, one of my uh, favorite concepts um, in the Bible is the concept of newness, You realize, don't you, that all over the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the word new is used all over the place. Part of the reason why I love the concept of newness is a personality thing. Okay, I'm a morning guy. Okay, any other morning guys or gals here? Yeah, we are godly, spiritual people, right? (laughs) You know, there's verses about us in the book of Proverbs. You ever found that one? It says that uh, a man who greets his neighbor loudly in the morning is a curse to him. So (laughs) doesn't matter how friendly you are at four in the morning. It's just not cool. Okay, so just be quiet and like, hey, dude. So that's all. All right. So, but I don't like the night. I, I frequently lay in bed and think, why do I have to sleep? And I know, I've said last week that, that sleep is worship, or two weeks ago sleep is worship, but the fact of the matter is I love a new day, I love a, a new morning, and, and I don't like this time of season that we're getting into, you know, when you go to work in the dark and you come home in the dark. I mean, that's just dark, isn't it? I mean, it's just like not a very fun environment. So I like newness. The new day, I love the fact that I woke up today and there was fresh grace today. went to bed last night. All grace gone. Just time to go to bed. Going to wake up. Fresh new supply. And double bonus. There's a clear blue sky and a beautiful sun that's rising. It's a new day. You know, the Bible is filled with wonderful statements about newness. I not only like newness just because of my personal bent, but I like newness because of some just compelling verses in the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a... New covenant with the house of Israel. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are what? New every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So when you wake up in the morning, you ought to think new every morning is your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness. Ezekiel 11, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 5:17. one of my favorites. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Amen. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us, it goes on to say in Hebrews 10, let us hold fast our confession of faith without wavering. So newness in the Bible is really, really important. It's captivating. It's compelling. And this morning I want to talk about the subject of newness in the Bible, because newness in the Bible is so different than newness in the world. Because the world likes to take new and try and tell you something is new when it really isn't. Or it's not as good. Example, how many of you remember new Coke? Remember that? Right? Ouch. Hard lesson for Coca-Cola Company. Here's another one. I don't know who came up with this idea. But some folks try and call a used car something else. Now, it's not new. No, it's not used. No, it's Pre-owned, right? Okay, it's still used, let's be honest, all right? So the world tries to take things that are not new and package them as new, or it takes the concept of newness and, and, and really doesn't fully understand what ultimate and real newness is. You see, newness in the Bible is a new that begins from the inside out. It's a newness that is transformational and total. It's a newness that Jesus brings. So if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you're trying to figure out the claims of Christ and and what is this sense of longing in your heart that's unfulfilled, I can tell you, friend, that Jesus is the one who brings a newness like no other. In fact, here's the, the bullet for today. And it's essentially this, that Jesus brings a new kind of new. It's that Jesus brings a new kind of new. Jesus creates newness that is different than anything else in this world. Now, today we're going to look at this concept of newness in two ways. We're we're going to look at it in Matthew chapter 9, figure out what this passage says about newness, and then I'm going to make some applications. About half of my message is going to be application as it relates to us in considering a new year. And what are the things that God is putting on the hearts of our staff and our elders that you as a congregation need to know and pray with us and the things that we want to invite you to be a part of as we look at, hey, there's a new year coming, there's a new budget that we're proposing tonight. What are the things that are on our hearts? Because after all, this is our church together. And what is it that God is placing in the heart of leadership to do to help us move forward for the glory of God? So we call this day Vision Sunday. The opportunity is to lay before you a couple things. Hopefully they're, they're clear and they're compelling that our hearts are beating for in 2010. So first I want to look at this dynamic of new people. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 tells us that as Jesus passed on from there, he was in Capernaum. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. The text tells us Here, the selection of Matthew as a disciple of Jesus. And remember that this person that we're talking about was the person who wrote the book that we're studying. So Matthew's recording his own moment when he decided to follow Jesus. Now, the fact that Matthew is sitting at a tax booth tells us a lot about Jesus and Matthew. Let me explain. To be a tax collector in Jesus' day meant that you were a collaborator with the occupying force of Rome. Rome had come in and taken control of the nation of Israel, and one of the ways that they kept the people under their thumb was through a system of taxation that caused Rome to increase its revenue and the people to not have a whole lot of money. Well, one of the interesting ways that they figured out, a rather ingenious way of collecting their tax revenue, was they would take particular portions of the region and they would auction them off. And you could buy a region of of the, the, the taxing zone, so to speak, and then you could be the tax collector for that region. Well, Rome didn't care how much you charged in taxes as long as they got their due. So in a little bit of free market ingenuity, they allowed tax collectors to charge as much as the region could support without killing them, and then Rome got their money, and you as a tax collector got to take anything over and above Rome's basic minimum requirement of taxation. So, if you were a tax collector, you were wealthy, but you were hated. You were viewed as a collaborator with the occupying force of Rome, and you were despised by the people. You were, in effect, part of the system keeping the nation of Israel under the thumb of the authority of this ruling government. So it is remarkable that Jesus recruits a tax collector. His chosen occupation would have been filled with corruption, extortion, greed, and disdain. To, to give you a feel of what this would be like, it would be the kind of feeling that we associate with these kinds of names. You ready? Ponzi. Hoffa. Madoff. Blagvoevich. See, imagine those people. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And they left what they did and then decided it would be like, whoa. And yet Jesus calls him. And not only is it remarkable that Jesus calls him, but it's also remarkable what Matthew does. Verse 9 says that after Jesus said, follow me, Matthew did so. Now, Matthew's a bit modest. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 says this about this moment, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So the idea, probably Matthew had set up some some sort of little tax booth or shop by the sea, and as goods came in off of the fishing industry or as goods went out, uh, Matthew had the ability to tax them, and he left his shop, he left everything, and follow Jesus, which that means that the minute he left, somebody would be waiting in line to be able to purchase that region of taxation. And the effect was that Matthew literally left everything to follow Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. It gets even better. Look at chapter 9 and verse 10. It says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. What's going on here? They're all hanging out with Jesus, these tax collectors and sinners. So well, you know how they got there? They got there because Matthew invited them. Luke chapter 5, verse 29 tells us that Matthew made a great feast and invited all of his friends to come, and Jesus and his disciples are there. So get this, he's sitting by the tax booth, Jesus says, follow me. He leaves and follows Jesus, and then he throws this huge party in his house for all of the other sinners that Matthew knew, all the people who he hung out with the notoriously sinful of his day. They were sharing a meal, which is more than just sharing food. This means that you were having relationship with, you were hanging out with. These were Matthew's friends who now were associating with Jesus. And that made the Pharisees a bit indignant. In verse 11, they ask why Jesus does this. And in verse 12, Jesus issues a rebuke. Of them, and also a hopeful statement to spiritually devastated people. Look at what he says, verse 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. <clears throat> For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's a huge verse. I came to call, not the righteous, but sinners. What is Jesus saying there? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that his ministry, or essentially the gospel, is specifically targeting people who need, listen, hope. Jesus has come to save people. That's why he's called the Savior. And he's come to save them from something. Well, what has he come to save them from? He's come to save them from their sins. And that is why it makes sense that the people who would be most interested in him are the people who see their need most clearly. The people who would know, I need help. People who would know that they're in trouble. People who would know what it's like to feel disdain. Jesus brings newness to people who know that they need something new. So here's the thing. If you've never come to College Park Church today, I'm so glad you're here, whether here or in worship too, or listening on podcasts. And I want you to know this. That the thing that makes us what we are is one simple truth, and that Jesus came to save sinners, and I was one of them, and this church is filled with them. The central truth is this, we were lost in our sins, we had no hope, we had no chance of ever pleasing God, and Jesus came and took away our sins, and paid our penalty, and now he is our Lord and Master, and therefore we are unashamedly people who needed a Savior. We had enormous need, and he came and delivered us. Now, here's the thing. In the text, I want you to notice that it's more dangerous to think you don't need to be new when you do than to need newness and know it. What is What are, what are you saying there, Mark? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that essentially, if you're here today and you know that you have need, if you know that your life is a mess, then there's a lot of hope for you. But if you're here today, and if you're like, yeah, I'm doing pretty well, i got it all together, thank God, just am cruising along, I'm okay, you know what, you're not okay. In fact, there's two takeaways from this text, here they are. The first is this, that real life change is contagious, it's meant to be a viral movement. Matthew goes and he finds his friends, and he he brings them, and he tells them, and he invites them to an encounter with Jesus. And and that's what real life change does. It becomes contagious. People see that you're different. They see that you have changed and they want to know what's different about you. The text also helps us understand that Jesus' kingdom is for messy people who need a miracle. So I've got news for you. College Park Church is filled with messy people. So if you're here today and you're like, yep, I'm a mess... Woo, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're like, no, I'm not a mess. You know what? You are a mess. And the fact that you don't see it means you're a really big mess. That's what it is. So the reality is the church is supposed to be a group of people who are like, look, messy people, and we need a miracle, and the only one who can help us change is the person of Jesus. And that's what Matthew encountered. A viral movement for messy people who need a miracle. I love that. A viral movement for messy people who need a miracle. I love that image of Jesus. And more than that, I love it when the church looks like that. I love it when it's okay to acknowledge I'm a messy person in need of a miracle. And candidly, when I hear that statement, a viral movement for messy people who need a miracle, I can't help but think about what God is doing in our midst here at College Park Church. So be encouraged. We're all a mess. <laughs> and we're part of a movement where we're saying, God, we need a miracle from you. You know, it's only been 19 months since my family came here. It's hard to believe that. Um feels like we grew up here love this church. I love what God is doing. The reason that we sense God calling us here was because we knew that God was at work historically at College Park Church. And we also sense that as a church, this group of people was on the verge of something new, something powerful, something impactful. I remember hearing the story of somebody who came to College Park Church. As they were driving in, they stopped someone and said, Hey, what's that church like? And the person pointed to the old sanctuary and said, All I know is God's in there. And I love that. I'm frequently asked by people in the community, Hey, what's what's going on at your church? And I'm grateful it's like, What's going on at your church? As opposed to, hey, what's going on at your church? Okay, so it's like that other one, that first one, not like, hey, what's going on? It's like, hey, what's going on? So it's like the upper, upper, upper. That's good. So, (laughs) And I'm frequently asked that, and my answer is, I don't know. I've said it this way. There's something in the water at this place. There is. And I think it has something to do, and I say this humbly and fearfully, I think it has something to do with our long-standing commitment to the Lordship of Christ, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, our commitment to doing life in community, our commitment to unity and diversity that continues to grow in the beautiful composite of how our church is changing in the people that are coming and we don't look all mono-ethnic The fact that we're involved in extravagant grace, the fact that we give a lot of stuff away, I think God pours out His blessing. And I think also because we're concerned about unreached peoples and calling people to go and do something about that, I think that God sees that and pours His blessings down upon us. In fact, my theme for this first two years, and probably for the rest of my ministry here, is simply this, Mark, just don't mess it up. Really. Really. Because every week we have amazing stories of what God is doing. Let me give you an example. Last week, week after, I think it was the third service, there were two young men that I was talking with, and I got involved in a counseling sort of discussion. We were trying to figure out something that they were wrestling with. And one person had been coming here quite a while. The other was, was, was new about a week or so, or two weeks, maybe two Sundays. So we got through that whole counseling discussion, which was fairly involved, about 10 minutes worth of counseling. And at the end, as the sanctuary was clearing and our counseling staff were starting to leave, this young man said, oh, and by the way, is there someone my friend could talk to because he'd like to receive Jesus today? I was like, yes. So I'm calling one of our counselors, hey, hey, hey come here. He's like, yeah, I said, do you have time to maybe lead someone to Christ? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that kind of thing, that happens all the time in the context of ministry here. And that, my friends, is a gift from the Lord. The fact that he sends us people who want to figure out more about what's going on in their soul and have a sense of conviction, you can't create that. All you can do is be a good steward of it. And I see it happening all the time. People who are excited about what God is doing in the context of ministry here, they invite others to experience what it means to follow Jesus with passion. Uh, A month ago, I I met uh, two Butler University students, two young guys who were juiced about this church, and they went and found two more, and they came back, there was four, and next week there was six, and then there was eight I mean, it's just like these students at Butler University, got, they're going back to their dormitories, into their houses, and telling their friends, and then they're coming. And that sort of thing, you can't manufacture that. You can't create that. All you can do is thank God for it and be sure you don't mess it up. Let me give you a few stats that just blow me away. You've heard a few of them already. I just want to repeat them so they get in your mind. From January to November, we had an average attendance increase of over 700 people. So if you're like, you know, it's feeling kind of full in here. Yeah, guess what? It is full in here. I mean, the 8 o'clock service now has had more people consistently than the third service. This week and last week. Now, I know it has something to do with something called a Colts game. I know it has something to do with that. But but the fact of the matter is, even with the Colts game, it's still miraculous that we have almost 900 people here at 8 o'clock in the morning. That's just not normal. Last week, our worship, two had over... 225 people there. And this morning, it's packed again. Over the last 18 months, you heard Joe mention this, there are a thousand more people who are worshiping here. And yet we have the same budget, same staff, same facilities. Our staff is working like crazy to do things better, more efficiently, and more effectively. And what we're finding is that we've been able to do it. Our 20-somethings class has exploded from 45 in 2008 to over 100 in 2009. In the third service, just wait, next service, there'll be like raucous cheers when I mention this because they all sit together, this massive herd over here. And they just, they love each other. They hound afterwards. And, you know, they just, they, they, they're just, they're a wonderful group. We've had 252 new members join since 2009. And we've had 500 people come to our Let's Eat and Fellowship night, something that we do for, for new visitors. Every week when I go back to the coffee talk room, I'm talking to somebody new who's come for the first or second time to College Park Church. But look, it's not just about numbers. Yeah, in every person there's a story. And with every story there's a a long track record of how God has been working in their life. And, And a great example of this would be a couple named Mitch and Sarah Dupuy. Sarah and Mitch came to a seeker's class. That meets in the home of David and Cindy Palmer. The express purpose for this class is to have a Bible study in the Palmer's home for people who don't know Christ and are trying to figure out the message of the Bible. Isn't that cool? And and Find some folks, let's get together, let's just study the Bible and, and see what happens. Well, Mitch had come to Christ some time ago, but in the context of that class, Sarah came to understand the reality of the gospel and she trusted Christ in the home of David and Cindy Palmer this year. A few weeks from now, she's going to be baptized. They're already in the process of joining the church, have signed up for a new membership class on November the 14th. And not only that, they're so excited about what they experience on Sunday in this sense of a captivated view of Christ that they're gathering other friends and they've already brought folks to this church. It's contagious. And I hope you get infected. Big time. But you know what's great? That's not the only story. That's not the only story. Let me, let me just show you. Now, I won't do anything to embarrass you at all, but I just want to see, if you received Christ in 2009, and you're here in this room, or in worship too, would you stand right now? If you received Christ, just quickly stand up and remain standing. If you received Christ in 2009, would you stand? Okay, I've got a little one over here. Thank you. Good. It always takes one to get others to go, to courage. Anybody else? Great. Secondly, if you were baptized, stay standing. If you were baptized in 2009, would you stand? All right, now here's the one that will blow you away. If you've joined the church in 2009, would you stand? Joined our church, or going to. Yeah, okay, we'll give you that too. Join. All right, can you believe that? Amen. Amen. The point of all of this is for you to understand that our mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus is captivating, it's compelling, and it is contagious. And that is that we are seeing God work in some wonderful new ways and reaching out to people who need hope. We're also seeing God show up in how we minister to each other and how we're able to bear one another's burdens. An example, just yesterday, at a men's prayer breakfast, we had over 200 men who came for a little bit of breakfast and a lot of prayer. And we sought the Lord over what it means to be a new man. We gathered on our knees, put our arms around each other, uh, and prayed, Lord, help us to hold fast our confidence in our faith. We've seen God do some great things in our Fresh Encounter services. Let me give you an example got an email from someone, they wrote this, A few months ago, I filled out a prayer request card to be prayed for at a fresh encounter service, and the prayer was for my wife's parents. They were separated, and their reconciliation seemed unlikely at best. My wife's dad wanted them to get together, but pretty much had given up hope, and honestly, so did we. My mother-in-law seemed to be preparing herself for divorce. She hired an attorney, filed for legal separation, and when we spoke with them about it, there was no sign of any desire to do what was right. Her mind just seemed to be so clouded that she couldn't see the truth. So our prayer was that God would open her eyes to help her see things through God's perspective. Two weeks later, we got a message from my wife's dad. He said that they were back together again and they were going to have a family celebration. Well, we were really excited about it and immediately knew that this had to be an answer to prayer. We had pretty much given up all hope. Our faith was weak, but yet God answered. And then, as if we couldn't already tell that God was serious about answering prayers, he made it even clearer. My wife's sister, who had just spoken with her dad about their reconciliation, informed us that her dad had just said about his wife that, quote, it's as if she sees things through a whole new set of eyes. I remembered then what I wrote on that prayer request card, and that is specifically what I had requested. Now these are just a few stories. I can tell you story upon story upon story. And what's thrilling to me is the way that God is at work in our midst, in people's lives who come from all walks of life. And our staff and our elders want more life change. We want. Remember when we did this sermon on um, pride, and we asked folks to come forward, and the, the, the aisle and the whole it was just filled with people. It's probably eighty. the the 90 people up front, we are unashamedly in favor of more of that. More lives changed, more new people coming under the authority of the word and experiencing who God is. We want more people to grow and walk in newness of life. Now, sometimes we don't really know how we're doing with that. And so one of the things that we decided to do this year is uh, there's a survey that we'd like you to take. Underneath your seat is a a survey. Pull that out a second. So look underneath your seat. There should be some surveys. The first service, um, we already used at least one. Please only take one. If you don't have one, you can raise your hand and an usher will get one to you. Or I'll give you one. There you go. So take this survey out. Now, here's what I want you to do. Right now, I want you to fill this out. We're going to turn these in. In a moment, you're just going to pass them towards the center aisle. Okay? And don't fold them, but don't look at your neighbors. Okay? Can we do that? All right, so here's what we're going to do. Here's the survey. The first is, I regularly attend a worship service at least three times per month. Yes or no? I feel like I'm growing spiritually, yes or no. Why are we doing this? Well, we're gonna take this test, and then a year from now, we're gonna take it again, and we just wanna see how we're doing. We wanna see, are we really, are people growing, our percentages, are people growing, or are we not growing in terms of our spiritual depth? Second question, I'm presently involved in some form of biblical community. What do we mean by that? We mean, are you intentionally and regularly gathering with a group of people to do life together and to get into one another's lives so you can help each other grow spiritually? This doesn't mean, yeah, I'm on a basketball team. No, no, no. no I get together with my friends and we do creative memories. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, in, in, that, that was a female illustration, just so you know, just in case you're wondering. Does he get together? No, I do not. I call it creative spending anyway. So besides that, um, the the meaning here is you get together and you are with some people and you're speaking truth into each other's lives and you're growing in unity together. You're, You're trying to help do life together. All right, next, embracing a calling. I am serving in a specific area of ministry, yes or no, and then circle one within or outside College Park. We know that a lot of you are doing some great things inside, Some of you doing some bang-up things outside. And then also, if you're a member of the church, check yes. Attended less than five years. Do you financially support College Park, your age, and your gender? Now, we're doing this so that we can just get a little snapshot on how we're doing with um, our spiritual growth. And then next year, we're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to compare it. And kind of see how we're we're doing as a church. And here's why. Because we are committed as a church ministry not just to have more people here. We want to be sure we're growing in our relationship with Jesus. We want to be sure that you're not just coming and listening and then leaving, but that you've got people investing into your life and that you're doing life with other people and that you're really growing in what it means to be a real follower of Jesus. So take those, pass those into the, uh, the aisles, and our ushers will come in about 30 seconds and pick those up. Can you multitask? Let's go to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14 now, because here's the second thing. That was all about new people. Here's the second thing, new ministry. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So here's a question. Apparently, John's disciples come and they they want to know, how come we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they're not fasting twice a week like everybody else does. Jesus answers the question with a challenging statement to fully understand. He talks about three things. You ready? He talks about a wedding, he talks about a piece of cloth, and he talks about new wine and wineskins. Now, his first answer is to point out that when people are celebrating, when they're at a wedding, when the bridegroom is present, they do not mourn or fast. It just doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 15. Jesus says this, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So the implication is this. Look, it's not cool to mourn at a wedding. Okay, so if you go to a friend's wedding, and not like you're a little teary up, okay? I mean, if you're in the back going, ooh <laughs> this is so wrong, you know, about that time, the ushers are going to be like, get her out of here, or sorry, ladies, get him out of here, right, so you're like, this is morning, or someone said, you know, you had a wedding, and they're like, how are you doing, like, oh, I'm just so sad, this is a terrible day, and that, you just don't do that at a wedding, okay, or you don't fast at a wedding, you know, fast is, or a wedding is rather time to, to have some food and some fun and to enjoy the meal and, you know, the server comes and the oh no, I'm sorry, I'm fasting today. I just, be like, what, what are you doing? Why are you even at a wedding if you're fasting and mourning? That doesn't make sense. And so what Jesus says is, look, the bridegroom, Jesus is there, so now is not the time for mourning and fasting. His second answer is also curious. Relates to the old versus new. The first example that Jesus gives is that you wouldn't take a new piece of unshrunk cloth and try and use it to fix a tear on an old garment. And the reason is is that using that new piece of unshrunk cloth wouldn't mesh well with the old garment and eventually, verse 14, the patch would tear away and the worse tear would be made, verse 14. The third example is that of wine. Jesus says that you don't take new wine and put it into old wine skins. Now, when, when they made wine in, in Jesus' day, they would take animal skins and they would pour this non-fermented grape juice into these skins and then over time the grape juice would ferment. And what happens to things when it ferments? The well, same thing that happens to um, my wife's little bag of um, Amish friendship bread. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a sucker for sweet bread. I mean, banana bread, um, little seeds. What are those? Pop. Poppy seeds, right? Did you failed drug tests with poppy seeds. Um, don't ask me why I know that. And um, <laughs> banana nut bread, and, and then my favorite is like the Amish sweet bread. Well, she got some, and she had that little little dough thing and the 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 up stuff, whatever it is. Obviously, she makes it, I don't. And it was in the uh, pantry, and I went into the pantry, and like two days earlier, it was just this little bag with this little bit of stuff in there, and two days later, it's like alive. It's expanded, It's it's got gas in it, right, and all this stuff. And I'm looking at it, and I'm shaking it, I'm like, what's wrong with this stuff? This looks like it's, it's like, no, that's what it's supposed to do, right? Because the fermenting process, or whatever it is that's going on in there, creates gases that then make the um, bag expand, And so what Jesus is saying is the same thing happens with wine. If you use an old wineskin that's already been been completely expanded, then when the new wine gets poured in and it expands, it won't have its elasticity anymore and it will burst and break. The implication being is this, that when you have new wine, you need to use new wineskins. Again, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that he is bringing a new kind of new. The analogy of both the wedding... The wineskins and the garment is the same. Jesus is not content, listen, with worn-out Judaism. His ministry couldn't fit into the old forms. He was bringing a new day of ministry. So one commentary summarized this way. Jesus did not mean to condemn the old forms. He merely said that they had their time. So he was ushering in a new season of ministry, one that was rooted in the past, but it was unique in its focus, its flavor, and its power. So what does that mean for us? It means that there are some really unique things that have happened in our past as a church That we can never lose our core values, the identity of who we are. Those things make the DNA of who we are as a church. But there's also this other thing that relates to us moving forward into 2010, is that there are more things to do in this city, as we've sung about. There are more people to reach, more lives to change, more unreached peoples around the world. And we have to figure out new ways and better ways to be able to reach them. We gotta think through carefully and strategically what do we have in the resources that God has given us and how can we pour our new wine into some new wineskins. Let me apply this very specifically. Last year, we laid before you three particular objectives. Relate to our strategy. The first was to determine our growth strategy. So we spent nine months thinking through How is it that we're going to address the fact that at that time we had, I think it was like uh, 2,600 people here, and last Sunday we had almost 3,400 people here. So we started thinking about this last year, not anticipating that our growth would continue at such an aggressive rate, and thinking through what do we do to address these issues. Spent nine months thinking, praying, researching, discussing, and you've heard all about that over the last number of months. The second thing that we did was we wanted to increase body-life connections for first-time visitors and members. Essentially, we want to be sure that when somebody comes to College Park Church, that we take every barrier away necessary for them to come and hear and meet with God. Some of you might think, well, wait a minute, is that like a seeker-sensitive thing? No, here's, here's my philosophy on this. I want someone to be, I want a lost person, a person who doesn't know Jesus, to be as, un, as comfortable as possible. I want them to find a comfortable parking space. I want them to open, walk through an open door. I want them to be warmly greeted and find a nice cozy seat here so they can be as absolutely comfortable as possible so that when they come in to the hearing of God's word, they will be as absolutely uncomfortable as possible. I, I don't want anything in my life or in our church to hinder the uncomfortable stumbling block message of the reality of the gospel. And so we worked really hard this year, your Dale, say, intentional hospitality. And I can just tell you, that's going exceptionally well. We're also trying to figure out how do we connect people into small groups? How do we get them from a new member class into small groups? That's why we created the bridge. That's why we created our new members class. We've created other things, uh, like a a Basics of Christianity class, to try and help people find connections life on life. And so we wanted to increase the avenues and the opportunities for people to connect in the broader community of faith here at College Park Church. And then third, our aim was to expand our influence in the Brookside neighborhood. For over ten years, a small group of people have invested their lives almost under the radar in the Brookside neighborhood. And we took a Christmas offering last year, That was almost $650,000 and began investing it in the Brookside neighborhood using ministry partners, using an accountability team. And I'm here to tell you there have been some amazing things that God has done through College Park Church. Do you know that there are 10 new ministries that have been launched in that area of our city because of our church? There's a, a location called the Beach House, a community center. There were kids this summer, listen, 42 kids from Brookside, who had never been outside of the city of Indianapolis, went to camp this summer. There's a literacy program that's going on, a program called Heart Change for Women, a discipleship class that's not only getting content and scriptures into the lives of women, but also helping them deal with all of the other hindrances that go along with their challenges in life. We've got after-school Bible studies that are going on. We've got the Christian Neighborhood Legal Clinic that's been launched. It's been one thing after another for us to be able to see this beautiful expansion. And I want to tell you that one small step at a time, our church and you that are involved by giving or by going are making a difference in a needy area in our neighborhood. And our community is taking note. And more than that, God sees it. And I know he's pleased. We've seen God do some great things through these three things last year. Now, What about 2010? Let me just share with you three particular things that are on our hearts. As it relates to exalting Christ, here's the first one. Last year was a planning year, 2010's an implementation year. It is time for us to implement our growth strategy addressing our facility needs. It's time. Our growth strategy involves three things. First, improving and expanding worship too. We've done that and we're still doing that. But the fact is, we can't just add more seats in the sanctuary a new problem has emerged, and that is supportive space in children's ministry, adult ed, and connecting space. You know what it was like this morning to wait out in the foyer before you got in, and I didn't do it on purpose, okay? It's just the way it is around here. After um, that, we're we're doing that. The next thing we have to do is look at some sort of facility expansion, and then when that's completed, our growth strategy is then we'll look at the possibility of going multi-site around the city, Our challenges, as I said, are not just sanctuary. They're comprehensive in their scope. We have facility needs all over the place. Some of you have children. You know what it's like to go up this stairway over here and try and check your kids in. I call it our stairway of doom. (laughs) Because it is hard to get up with all those people coming up and all those folks going down. So right now, what are we doing? We're in the middle of a feasibility study looking at a facility expansion. That would include a new sanctuary, connecting space, renovated adult and children's space. And right now we have three teams working. We have a facilities team looking at what we would do. We have a finance team looking at how do we um, deal with this on a long-term basis. And then a funding team looking at the feasibility of so what exactly would we need to raise over and above our existing operating budget. We will complete this work by the end of the year. Our elders will receive a presentation, and we will have something to you as a congregation to consider by the end of January and the first part of February. Let me be very candid with you. We have to do something. We can't do nothing. And the reason is, is because we have a stewardship, folks, of 3,300 people that God has sent to us with limited space and facility, and we have to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. What our elders are talking about is not a field of dreams kind of project, like If you build it, they'll come. No, our project is not a field of dreams. You know why? Because they're here. That's why. (laughs) And we have to be good stewards of that. I have this sense within my heart that we have to be good stewards of the people that God is sending us. And therefore, we have to address not just our growth strategy, but the implementation of it in 2010. And we will. Secondly, experiencing community. We want to expand our corporate commitment to doing life together and see small groups particularly mobilized for ministry together. Let me be clear. Community, doing life together has to happen here or we will only be a big church with no depth. And I won't have that. We can't have that. We can't be a mile wide and an inch deep. That's why we're doing this survey, that's why we're talking about this, why we are continually pushing you towards membership or getting plugged in in some kind of small group. Right now, we need to launch about 10 to 15 new small groups. We need about 10 to 15 new small group leaders. And we need to discover how we can do life together in small groups, in our big groups, and in Bible studies. We have to be content. We can no longer be content that we're just gathering together and we're just giving out content. We have to think, how do we do life together? Right now we have about 700 people, that's our estimate, about 700 people who have no connecting point. And, and, and my aim as the lead pastor here is, if you just come on Sunday mornings, you come and lead. you can do that for a while. But I just want you to know that over the long haul, I don't think that's good for your soul. You need people in your life calling you and encouraging you to walk in newness of life. And therefore, we're also going to provide opportunities for small groups. If you're a small group leader here, listen, we want you to take your small group and find a way to use that small group to serve together. Like what happened yesterday at kids' church. A small group went down there, they saw what was going on, they were able to serve, and then they processed together as a group. Third, embracing a calling. Our aim is to create a culture of leadership development. You know, College Park over the years has been known for great content and my prayer is that we're going to continue to be sure that doesn't change. But we need to think not just about what we teach, we need to think through how we are teaching and who we are developing. Every area of ministry, every area of ministry has to think about who is coming up next. Every area of ministry has to think about training up a Timothy. Every person needs to have a Paul that they can look up to, and everyone needs to have a Timothy who's coming up behind them. And the ministries that are doing that are seeing new levels of growth, and they can handle it because they have enough leaders. I'm particularly burdened that we can help young men and young women learn how to use their gifts. So we need some of you who are seasoned adults to realize that you can't retire from helping people become leaders. We need you to invest deeply into the lives of young men and young women and help them become like you. And we need to do this because our vision is big and grand and our hopes are enormous and yet we need help from across the board and people raised, being raised up to be leaders. So next year we're going to have four conferences. Think. The theme of that will be why everything you do matters to God. Equip, which will be our counseling, um, equipping the saints conference. Serve, finding ways to get involved in our community and go, our missions conference. We'll continue through the study of Matthew. We'll take a break probably in August again um, and do a relationship series probably this year on the fear of man, which none of us ever struggle with. And then um, we're going to continue to expand our influence in Brookside. In 2010, we dream of... Three words being realized here. Here are the three words. Broader, deeper, and together. And we want to look for how is it that God has positioned us as a church to figure out the new things that he wants us to do in our city. There are greater things that God wants to do in and through our lives. There are new things that he wants to be able to launch us into. Things that he wants us to be able to grab a hold of. There are things that we can actually make a difference in in our community by being strategic and focused, heartfelt, prayerful, and saying, look, by going broader and deeper and doing this together, we could be a part of what Jesus is doing, a new kind of newness. Let me give you a final example of what I'm talking about. There's a a woman in our church who was working in the heart change ministry in Brookside. This ministers to women in that neighborhood who need not only the content of the scriptures, but they just need someone to love on them. Here's what she wrote. In January, I began working with a 22-year-old single mom with three young preschool children that could not read. Our first meeting was tense. She would not give me eye contact, would barely even talk with me. I asked her to trust me and work with me so I could help her, and she replied, I can't. I don't know how to trust you. We met twice a week for one and a half hours at heart change, and finally, weeks later, she said to me, you act like you like me. Several more weeks later, she asked, why do you keep coming back? As time went by, out of nowhere, she said, can I trust you? And after responding yes, she said, I can't count money or tell time, and can you help me? Every time I met with her, I would call her cutie, sweetie pie, or something silly, and one day she said, I love it when you call me those names. When the semester ended, I told her I was so very proud of her, and she teared up and said, no one has ever told me that. As I was leaving, she asked, how long will you keep coming to see me? I replied, as long as you come, I'll come. And she said, I hoped you'd say that. It's been 10 months since we began this journey together, and we are both still coming. I'm not sure between the two of us who has learned the most. And I am so grateful to have had this amazing opportunity. Then she writes this, one person at a time, we can make a difference. Do you believe that, College Park? Jesus brings a new kind of new, and there is nothing, hear me, there is nothing more exciting than being a part of his new work. So let's dream what God might do through our church for his glory and our good in 2010. Oh, Father, we thank you that you do a work that is new and fresh and powerful through your Son in our lives We thank you that your mercy captivates our hearts and conquers our sin. And we thank you that we have new life through your Son and that we can be the kind of people who declare with heartfelt commitment, you bring a new kind of new, Jesus. We are so grateful that you have created this, a means of grace, a means of redemption. We love you and worship you. Thank you for making us new. And thank you for letting us be involved in helping others to be new. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.